like on one hand, I think all of this writing has been part of just how I have survived. It helps me day to day as a daily practice. Um, and then on the other hand, I look through it all and I'm like, wow, in a lot of ways, I can see how this got me further from remembering what really happened. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 17 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, writer, editor, and actress Tabby Gevinson talks about how she's dealt with some very difficult situations. I've learned that writing and therapy are two really different things. Hi, this is Adam Grant of Taken for Granted. This year, we worked with our sponsor, Jobs Ohio, to crowdsource some thought-provoking questions we're all dealing with as the landscape of work continues to change. Stay tuned to listen to my responses to Sheila and Lois, whose situations might not be so unique. Tavi Gevinson is still young, but she's no longer really, really young. She came to public attention when she was just 11 years old for her fashion blog, Style Rookie. A few years later, she founded the online magazine, RookieMag.com, which combined fashion and feminism for teenage readers. She also did quite a bit of acting in her teen years, both in films and on stage. In 2018, Rookie stopped publishing, but Tavi Gevinson, now in her mid-20s, still writes, edits, and acts. And Rookie didn't really die. Now there's an Audible podcast, Life Skills by Rookie, which Tavi hosts. And she is starring in the soon-to-be-released reboot of the hit television show, Gossip Girl. Tavi Gevinson, welcome to Design Matters. Thanks, Debbie. I'm so excited to speak with you. I am too. Tavi, is it true that Winona Ryder gifted you a pair of brown leather gloves that once belonged to Audrey Hepburn? That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> so so take us through that. How, how did that happen? And I do need to know, how did they smell? <laughs> um, like vintage, very old gloves. Um, so Rookie published like a birthday tribute to Winona Ryder, I think the first year we were publishing. And then she emailed our editor's inbox, said she wanted to take a bunch of us out for dinner so we went somewhere here in Brooklyn and we kept in touch over the years. And then when I did my first play in New York, she gave me, no, she gave them to me just before that for my 18th birthday, the nicest, <laughs> uh, wildest gift uh, you can give a person. How did she have them? Did Audrey Hepburn give them to her? Yes. Wow. That's provenance. I know. I have them in a safe, literally. That's incredible. <laughs> so, Tavi, you grew up on a quiet tree-lined street in a community west of Chicago. Your dad was a hippie who went to Woodstock. Your mom was born in Norway and is an accomplished textile artist. And you've said that your childhood was somewhat like the show The Sound of Music. In what way? Wow. Um, I think whenever I said that, I was maybe being a little idealistic. I should I should clarify. I don't know if my dad's a hippie. He went to Woodstock when he was 18. But by the time I was growing up, he like he's an, a high school English teacher, um, pretty buttoned up. Oh, OK. But I think when I said that, I was thinking of like my sisters and I all did musical theater my mom is an artist. She weaves tapestries. And, you know, my sisters and I were often kind of choreographing dances or making dioramas. Our basement was full of art supplies, and it just wasn't a big deal to be creative. You began acting long before you were interested in fashion. I understand that you and your two older sisters were active in the local community theater, and you played Gavroche in Les Mis. <laughs> Really so, good so, research. So wait, so can you also sing? Like, are you also a singer? We get to see you in musical theater at some point? You know, I was two weeks into rehearsing a musical when the shutdowns happened a year ago. Which um, musical? Assassins 
the oh, wow. Stephen Sondheim, John Weidman show. It was going to be at Classic Stage Company here in New York off Broadway. And um, we're hoping that we can come back this fall. Yeah, so I, I do, I have been singing since I was a kid. Like I would say probably the reason I can be in Assassins is because I'm playing Squeaky From and none of the characters oh, yes, are yes. I, supposed yeah, I to did be read like about that. <laughs> real singers. <laughs> I, I can serve a, a story. But I, I wouldn't I identify as a singer. That would be like insulting to real singers. <laughs> <laughs> what is it like to embody a character that's done so many evil things? Oof. I mean, I'm really excited to do this show because unfortunately it's only become even more prescient since the shutdowns. It's about people who try to assassinate different U.S. presidents, some successfully. Um, based on real people. And I guess, like, the little that we got into the process, you know, a lot of her longer monologues are very similar to what's in her memoir and the way she remembered her uh, experience of Charles Manson as, like, him kind of saving her. You can find kind of an in to understand how someone else who's done things you would maybe never do to see how they make sense of their own experiences and do or don't see them as evil or or traumatic or not. I want to go back to the origins of your founding the Rookie Empire. Um, <laughs> when you were in sixth grade, a friend from your theater had an older sister who had created a fashion blog. And I read that you were struck by how much confidence and style she had. But what impressed you most was when her classmates mocked her sight, she wasn't upset. She actually found them amusing. And I'm wondering why, why did that specific thing impress you? I think... I felt very uncomfortable being in middle school and being like, wait a second, like some of us are growing up and like dating boys and some of us still look like we're eight years old. Uh, this is what is going on here. And I felt much more on the like, I'm still eight years old side. So I think my interest in fashion came from being like, oh, I can reject this, you know, uh, version of growing up that I really don't relate to and would like to put off as long as possible, which is, you know, to basically become like a female object sort of. By the way, like not, not that I could articulate any of this at the time, but when I look back, I'm like, oh, right. I was very, I was a late bloomer. I was uncomfortable with my body and growing up and everything that becomes a part of like the female experience after a certain age and someone like Stephanie who had the blog showed how dressing could be kind of a creative outlet and then her attitude toward her classmates who made fun of her was like armor the idea of not being kind of afraid of people even though I totally was was something to aspire to do you think that you, I mean, I don't know if you would even have known this back then, but looking back on it, do you think that your starting style rookie was an experiment in trying to feel less concerned about what people thought of you and less about really fashion and that type of expression? Yeah, I mean, yes and no. Like it was a blog for an audience. So I was concerned with the response, but it was kind of like, let me at least create a little arena where where the, the people I'm in community or conversation with are other fashion bloggers and other teenagers online who I think are cool, rather than uh, uh, boys at my school who make fun of me. <laughs> <laughs> um, you debuted Style Rookie in March of 2008. And what I found so interesting about er those early posts was the range. You admired the style of Twiggy, Lucille Ball, Thomas the Tank. You know, individually, they're interesting, but as a combination, I think they become even more interesting. And so where were you finding so much of your inspiration at that point from other blogs or reading or movies or TV or all? 
definitely other blogs. I remember Stephanie also sent me an email that that was like, here are the, the blogs I read and here are the cool magazines I read. So then it was Nylon and British magazines like ID and Dazed and various Vogue's from Japan, uh, Italy, Vogue Paris, um, oh, Lula magazine. And definitely the more indie ones I'm mentioning, like they were irreverent and eclectic in their references. So I was just being opened up to these other ways of thinking about it as a form of self-expression. In the first year of publication, Miranda July became a fan and sent <laughs> one of your videos to Kate and Laura Malivi, the sisters that founded Rodarte. Do you know how Miranda July first became aware of what you were doing? No, I don't. I should definitely ask her. <laughs> and I, I believe that very first year, you were also invited to your first fashion week, where Karl Lagerfeld admired your blue-gray dyed hair. Did you dye your hair blue and then it faded to gray, or was the decision to dye it gray? I dyed it blue and then it faded and then it seemed like a major political statement of some kind. <laughs> that was when I first became aware of you and I oh, saw wow. this picture of you with the gray hair and I thought, this is like the most genius thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and and I, I, I still remember the moment I saw that picture of you thinking, this is the most feminist thing I think I've ever seen. <laughs> oh, that makes me happy. But when that first Fashion Week was over, you wrote that you cried and you thought that all you would have was that one cool experience. And now you'd be going back to middle school where you were made fun of for what you wore. Did you really think at that time that that would be it? Was that like a sort of theme of, of feeling like this is the best it's going to be or I'm only going to have this one shot? That's something I've I've contended with my whole life. Like if I don't do this thing that I'm never going to get that opportunity again. Yeah, totally. I had no perspective. And I also, I mean, I, a few years ago, I did a play with a 12-year-old and his mom afterwards was telling me just the grief he felt for weeks and weeks. And I was like, oh, right, because you, you're literally not old enough to know that you'll, you know, these projects happen again and you'll have collaborations and you'll travel again. Like, you know, it felt um I guess it's also because fashion is so it was so conditional like my family couldn't afford for a, a parent and me to travel to one of you know to New York or Paris or whatever for a, a photo shoot or a fashion show or something unless it was being paid for so it was sort of like well as long as they'll have me like I'd love to keep doing this stuff these are amazing experiences I'm being exposed to people I really respect and getting to interview designers and meet these photographers. And of course, I wanted it to be more of a career somehow or the beginning of a career of some kind of like career in the arts. But I didn't really know what I wanted and and how long it could kind of work for. By the time you were 13, you were commissioned to write for Harper's Bazaar, which made you the youngest writer ever published by the magazine. But at that point, there seemed to be some people who thought that your blog was a hoax perpetuated <laughs> by fashion insiders, or even your parents were writing it because it was so professional. And even your sister had to defend you online <laughs> to naysayers and say, by saying, this is my younger sister, she's really legit. How did you manage all the questioning and the doubt? It was very shocking and not easy. I think one thing I remember finding helpful was that my dad gave me this story by Harvey Swatos called Claudine's Book, which is about a girl who her aunt discovers her diaries and has them published as a book. And then the girl kind of becomes famous. And then she decides to let people believe that it's a hoax because she wants to return to her normal life, which, I mean, I was not like Claudine. I wasn't writing private diaries that were discovered. I was like seeking out an audience on the internet. So it was different, but, you know, trying to kind of look to stories like that or people I admired, like, I think that's why part of why I love Bob Dylan and Ray Kubo so much like people who were misunderstood and were like great I'll just make this work for me 
I think it's part of how I dressed. I think it's part of things I wrote that were really opaque and confusing. (laughs) Um, You know, it was very confusing. And even if in theory, I knew like, okay, this, what this really means is that I'm, I'm good at what I'm doing. If enough people kind of think you're fraudulent, then you feel like a fraud. So I definitely felt insecure about all of it. And at the same time had a lot of support and you know I'm sure it helped me in some way to develop some kind of I'll show them (laughs) drive at that age which I still have to this day (laughs) so yeah (laughs) well by 2011 you became disillusioned with the fashion industry and one defining moment occurred while you were sitting next to Anna Wintour at a fashion show yeah it was so scary (laughs) um (laughs) I think she she was seated next to me and we like acknowledged each other, said hi or something. And then she turned to me and said, when do you go to school? And it struck me as so aggressive and it possibly wasn't, but it, it was just, conf- it was confusing. I don't know. I was just like, the visions of becoming an adult that I'm being offered here are really bleak. And like, I don't want to become someone who has the kind of relationship to youth that this world does. But I think what I felt at that show after the interaction with Anna was like, uh, it didn't feel magical anymore. It didn't feel like a kind of storybook. I wasn't like something I could kind of escape into as much. And also by that point, I was in high school and I finally liked going to school and, you know, had a good group of friends and all of that. Rookie didn't ever feel like it was about shopping or consuming or trying to attract boys in the same way that so many other teen magazines, both online and off, seem to to position themselves. It almost felt anti-consumerist. In, in a lot of ways. And I'm wondering if that was intentional, you know, if you can look back on it now and say, yes, that was actually a decision. It wasn't just how I was feeling, but it was a direction that I wanted to work in. Yeah, it was both. Like, I think, you know, we didn't, sometimes our shoots were styled and we borrowed clothes for them. A lot of the time it was just teenagers shooting their friends in the clothes they already had. And, you know, the point wasn't that you could look at the photos and then buy what the people in these photos were wearing you know the things I've always loved like thrifting and DIY projects that was a big that was definitely a a conscious decision for Rookie to be about that I mean we had style and beauty advice columns that sometimes involved recommending like these are good bras to buy or whatever but it was definitely a choice for it to not be about just buying more more stuff You still continued to perform on stage when you were 14. You performed in a community theater production of Ragtime, where you played a little boy. You dyed your hair raggedy and red, from what I understand. Were were you taking acting lessons through this time, or were you just learning on the job, so to speak? I started doing voice lessons when I was eight, but I didn't take acting classes. I just did local theater and some school plays. You also voiced a character in the animated short film Cadaver alongside Kathy Bates and Christopher Lloyd, which was long listed for an Academy Award. Did you begin to feel any sort of conflict or push-pull between acting roles, the ambitions and responsibilities of rookie and going to school? And I want to say that in a very different way than Anna Winter said it to you. (laughs) Um, yeah, I think probably the thing that suffered the most was my schoolwork because I, (laughs) then it was really important to me to be with my friends and have some quote unquote normalcy. Yeah. I've no, I don't know how I did. It sounds horrible now. I'm like the thought that I went to school from like eight to three and then I worked on rookie for out. I mean, I, I guess that's why it was a a passion project. (laughs) But yeah, it, like it, it was not a balanced day. Yeah. I love the fact that you were posting from 3 o'clock p.m. till midnight because that's when your readers were away from school. So in some ways, it kind of worked. Um, yeah. 
You made your Broadway debut in 2014 at the Court Theater in Kenneth Lonergan's play, This Is Our Youth. And I know you actively pursued getting that role. How did that opportunity come about? (laughs) Scott Rudin told uh, my agents that he wanted me to audition for it. And I read the play and auditioned for, I think I sent a self-tape. Then I had a call back in New York that my dad and I flew here for. And then I met with the director in Chicago where she also lived because the show started at Steppenwolf. Yeah, then we did it at, at Steppenwolf that summer. Bren Brantley in the New York Times said this about your performance. The precocious 18-year-old fashion blogger Moonlighting Here is an astonishingly assured actress. And you also got an excellent review in your next Broadway role in Arthur Miller's The Crucible, where you were described as a malleable, craven, and poignantly credible serving girl. And Tavi, with reviews like that, did you consider at that point giving everything else up and dedicating your life to being an actor full-time? Uh, No, I still really wanted Rookie to keep going, especially now that like I wasn't in school anymore and could give it more time. You stated that you feel very in touch with the biology of the world when you're acting. (laughs) And I kind of love that. I I was wondering if you could tell me more about it, because I... I think that when somebody's feeling really connected to any art, there's sort of that connection with the spirit world, so to speak, without being too (laughs) woo-woo. No, totally. I think it's a a completely magical thing, especially if you do something as many times as you do in a play. Your body just knows it intimately enough that you don't have to think a whole lot. There's also, you know, the unknown variables of like the audience is different every night and the other actors are different and just really magical things can take place. And you also can sort of observe the way the show is different every night on such a molecular level. I guess that's what I was trying to say. Like your awareness is so sharpened because you've just been, yeah, from the repetition, I think. And I I just really love the way that that feels. Today, we're partnering with Jobs Ohio to think through questions that a lot of us are facing. Consider this my version of Office Hours. Hi, Adam. Excited to participate. My name is Sheila Akins. I'm with Jobs Ohio as the managing director. We're beginning to discuss bringing employees back to the office. How can we do this thoughtfully? Well, thank you, Sheila. The first step that's missing in a lot of organizations is just to ask, what are we trying to accomplish here? I think once you identify the goals that you have, you can start to prioritize them together. And then I think the second step that I would take is I would consider running an innovation tournament. Instead of assuming then that we have all the answers, we might as well crowdsource some initial ideas and say, look, you know what? We're going to run a contest Anybody in the organization can submit ideas for how we might think about navigating the transition back to work. Does that idea of giving people one day a week to work from anywhere, does that give us a good balance of productivity and collaboration and culture? Are we in a situation where we want people to have the same days working remotely, or do we want to try to stagger them out? Those are open questions, and the only way to learn is to run experiments. Hi, Adam. My name is Lois Brown, and I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. I recently re-entered the workforce, and I'm wondering if you could give me some advice on how to build confidence in this new career. Lois, congratulations on your new role. I do know some people who, when taking on a completely different career path, are not intimidated. Those people are called narcissists. The rest of us, when we walk into a new job or an unfamiliar career path, we're naturally intimidated. You're not alone. And I think that's the first thing to remember. I would also recognize that being an outsider to some extent gives you some insight. We know that when people have worked for an organization for a long time, they often get trapped in cognitive entrenchment, where they start to take for granted assumptions that need to be questioned. And I would say in your first few weeks and even first few months, it's a great opportunity to observe the culture. You may have thoughts that are helpful to the people around you. 
And once you make a suggestion that people find useful, that can become a source of confidence and you start to feel a little bit less intimidated. Everyone you just heard from is affiliated with Jobs Ohio in some capacity. And they're working through the same challenges many of you might be facing. Jobs Ohio is a nonprofit corporation designed to drive job creation by focusing on key growth industries and projects to improve communities statewide. See what Ohio can offer you and your business at ohioisforleaders.com. Ultimately, after seven years in publication, you decided to end Rookie's Run in 2018, and you wrote a poignant six-page piece on the site about why. Mm-hmm. And I got the sense in reading the letter then, rereading it now, knowing what you've been doing since, that this was very possibly the hardest and, and maybe most important decisions of your life. Yes, it was. How do you feel about it all now? Looking back on it, it's been three years, maybe two real years, one fake year mm-hmm. um, <laughs> in this strange time we're in. Do you, do you have any regrets? Yes, but I'm also like kind of can't isolate one thing and wish it were different without accepting that then your whole life would be different. So, of course, like there was a period where I wish I'd kept it going longer. There was a period where I wish I had ended it a lot sooner. Of course, there were, you know, like it was a financial mess and a financial loss. But other than that, like, (laughs) I don't know, I gave myself such a a gift by kind of just freeing myself of this responsibility that I was really used to having and letting myself think about who I could be if that wasn't such a big part of my life. And I feel so much freer as a writer being able to talk about that experience more openly and not feel like I have to keep up this kind of, you know, like everything's great over here, thriving business over here. So, um, yeah, and also just I have so much more time now. (laughs) Well, it's sort of interesting to consider, you know, the faces that we have to put out there in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, your, your final letter in rookie was remarkable for so many reasons. And I also think it gave other bloggers, early bloggers, uh, people like Grace Bonney, for example, from design sponge. I think it gave them a way to understand what their creation meant in a moment in time. And it was also okay to let that go if you didn't want to monetize it in a way that felt inauthentic or tawdry. After you moved to New York, you wrote a cover story for New York Magazine about how the sort of black hole of social media and Instagram had overtaken you. And you stated, everyone and everything I encountered in person, I had already interacted with or consumed online. Mm. The people I was fans of became real people I knew, but they didn't know what I knew about them, and I didn't know what they knew about me. There were a million versions of all of us running around in one another's heads. I posted my own press photos, party photos, and red carpet photos, and I quieted the inner younger me who would have found that shallow and gross. <laughs> there was no need for another private fake public account for these moments. They became my everyday. At last, I could claim the realm of visibility I authentically infiltrated. Tavi, what made you decide to write the piece? It was very honest. You were very hard on yourself. Like I came away from that piece thinking, Tavi Gevinson is being really harder on herself than she needs to be. Wow. Well, I'm interested in that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it really felt like you were taking yourself to task for doing something that everybody does. Like everyone is doing this. And yes, you could sort of came clean and, and admitted it all, but you weren't admitting something that was so alien to the rest of us that we were like, lock her up, put her away. You know, it was oh. like, oh my God, we're doing this too. We're all doing this. And we're all positioning ourselves as one person in front of everybody else while inside we're weeping. Yeah. I mean, well, also now I'm like, I mean, I have, I would have to re. It's been a while. I'd have to reread it, but I do think to write such a thing now, I think it would be a lot less about the way Instagram uh, modifies human behavior, or at least my behavior, and more about you know the economic structure behind it, um, which is 
so vile <laughs> and I'm sure is, you know, super pleased for people to think like the worst thing about Instagram is just that it makes us insecure or something. But I think I wrote it because I did feel it was, you know, rewiring my brain. And I had made these videos on Instagram where I was joking about trying to game the algorithm to make sure people would see my videos in their feeds and trying to use funny filters or like I went to Times Square and took selfie videos in Times Square. And then Instagram reached out to me and they were like, come to our offices, we'll explain the algorithm. Of course, it was like a, you know, very surface level meeting. And so then I emailed some of what I had written about to Stella Bugby, who was then editor-in-chief of The Cut. So I don't know. I think it feels good to make some of these things visible, especially because, I mean, it, it is very uncomfortable to feel like I represent something in the to people looking at me, even if it's not that many people that I don't really relate to. And in the kind of latter years of rookie you know, when I was trying to fundraise for it, when I was trying to publicize it, like when I was a little more of like a, a girl boss, like I, it didn't feel great. And so it was a relief to offer up something that was about how difficult the financial reality of it actually was and about how much easier it was to make money as an influencer because historically women are, are valued for what they look like. Yeah. Well, I want to I want to talk a little bit about that too because your yeah. your next piece for New York Magazine talks about that as well. But before we get to that, one thing that I did notice throughout my research and in, in preparing for the show today was the notion in that piece in particular. You talk about how when you were reviewing posts from that era now, you almost envied your own life as though it were someone else's. And the concept of sort of two lives reminded me of something that your mother said when mm -hmm. Style Rookie first debuted, and then something you wrote when you closed Rookie. So your mom stated, there are two stories here, the 13-year-old who lives in our house and the 13-year-old who is being taken very seriously in this world of fashion. And then in your Goodbye Rookie letter you shared, it is sometimes felt that there are two rookies. There's the publication that you read, that I also love reading, writing for, and editing, and then there is the company that I own and am responsible for. The former is an art project, the latter is a business. Each one needs and feeds the other. But when I started Rookie at age 15, I saw the two as mutually exclusive. Mm. And I kind of loved this running theme of, of this duality and, and as well as sort of somebody that's very introspective in the kind of work that you do with your writing and then someone that's very extroverted or extrospective, <laughs> if that's <laughs> a word, with, with your performing. So mm. I just wanted to sort of mention that really I'm there's so no flattered. my gosh I can't I'm so flattered by how much details you're bringing up my gosh um yeah this this pleases me <laughs> okay thank you um so you you have described yourself as a writer and an actor and an artist but you also state that you haven't believed the purity of your own intentions ever since you became your own salesperson too again that duality so mm -hmm. do you feel like you're able to balance those polarities more now do you, do you feel like there's less of a sort of delta between that artist and salesperson? Mm. Yeah, I mean, definitely not having a business to, I mean, I have the business of like me to <laughs> maintain. And so I just sort of make a series of decisions around like what's good for business and doesn't take away from what I love doing and what's good for business, but not worth it you know, as an actor, writer, um, someone with a personal brand. Um, I do think that maybe when I was younger, I mean, there's like, A, the kind of being a teenager and being a purist and caring about selling out or whatever. B, there's the responsibility Rookie had to its readers to not sell them lies. C, there's like, you know, now the idea of someone doing Spawn Con is hardly would hardly be considered selling out. 
but in earlier days of Rookie and certainly my blog, to do such a thing felt so compromising. And so, yeah, I mean, now I definitely don't, again, I guess the gift of time, like I just know myself a little better. And so there isn't a kind of identity crisis around all of this stuff. And I also just frankly have enough financial stability and wealth that like, I don't have to decide to do things that I really don't care about or dislike, but that would be good for my brand or make me a lot of money. So honestly, that's a big part of it. Like it it is a a privilege to not um, have to do things that make you feel compromised. But I, but I do also think the world has changed a bit where I think <laughs> we're just sort of, um, you know, like the backbone of our economy is GoFundMe. And I think there's an overall understanding of like, everyone do what you can. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> no judgment. Yeah, I, rem- <laughs> I, I remember back in the early 80s when having a sponsor for a rock and roll tour was considered selling out. Now mm-hmm. you can't have a rock tour without one. Right. So, <laughs> Tavi, in February, you wrote another piece for New York Magazine about your issues with the Britney Spears documentary and what you referred to as well-meaning attempts to ascribe young women power that they don't have. And in the article, you write about how when you entered the world of adult men as an 18-year-old, you were aware that you'd been granted access, visibility, and currency through your whiteness, thinness, cisness, and what Janet Mock calls pretty privilege as well as your social status. And you cannot reconcile your awareness of your power and all the safety it promised with the idea that you were also vulnerable in any way. And you go on to state, with beauty as the only such capital being considered in your prime is not a position of power if you are a girl alone in a room with a man. And in the article, you revealed that you were taken advantage of emotionally and sexually because of that capital. And I'm really sorry that this happened to you, Tavi. But I also want to thank you for writing about this, because I think that when anybody discloses their own experiences, it helps all women. Thank you. You very specifically didn't name your assaulters. Any particular reason why? (laughs) Do you have seven hours? Um. (laughs) (laughs) I do. My producer might not, but I do. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, I think in the context of the piece, you know, I was making a a larger argument about power dynamics, and I didn't want to distract from the argument with anything that could be taken as gossip. You know, to name someone in public, you are so much better protected if you can support yourself with details and evidence and I'm much too in the thick of processing a lot of it to offer that up to audiences. I also think creatively, rhetorically, and politically, I really liked the move of being like, you know what? It's not that important. He's, I I promise you, he's not that interesting. Like, I really don't want my experience to become overshadowed by this person's identity and in fact viewing cases of assault and abuse through this sort of fascination with individual men's identities that our culture kind of keeps doing in the last few years since Me Too became more mainstream. I would say that way of looking at these stories was even damaging for me in understanding what was happening while it was going on and then in my ability to process it later because then like the most important thing was protecting this person's identity (laughs) but what I was writing was more about my experience of sexual trauma and I wasn't seeking that kind of justice for that piece it did not feel like it would better position me or my arguments by naming any of the men I was writing about. Do you feel that you're able to process it 
or are you still processing how what has the journey been like for you with mm-hmm. putting that information out there and then managing your own realizations about your abuse I've learned that writing and therapy are two really different things <laughs> and that the sort of trauma therapy that I've um, <laughs> in is like actually here here's something that's really interesting you know i've been doing a lot of writing about these experiences for myself for years and it is interesting to look back and have documents of like how much the story has kind of changed and of my own cognitive dissonance like on one hand i think all of this writing has been part of just how i have survived It helps me day to day as a daily practice. Um, And then on the other hand, I look through it all and I'm like, wow, in a lot of ways, I can see how this got me further from remembering what really happened. Because if you are kind of trying to make something into a story or if you are trying to service a larger argument, it's really easy to lie to yourself, forget things. And actually, when I published that article in The Cut... I was so shocked to learn that like the performative power of saying out loud or in writing what happened and publishing it, even if I didn't share details, even if I didn't name anyone, to say it out loud, publish it and see people respond and be like, I know exactly what kind of relationship you are talking about. I've never known anything to be so true in my life and I believe you. That was so powerful that it actually brought to light so many more things I had totally forgotten. Mm. And so it's been really disruptive and like really a trip. Um, but it it is oof, so superior to the years of not sharing it with people or be feeling a bizarre need to protect these men or literally just having these blanks in my in my memory and thinking like well I guess I'll never really know what went on and now it's like no 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 you know (laughs) you do know it's it's (laughs) you do know yes yes I've experienced it too it's the older you get I think the more these things reveal themselves as Mm -hmm. actual things (laughs) and not just concepts if that makes sense yes Tavi, you've talked about how the writer George Saunders once said he was really glad his books didn't do well until he was much older. He felt that when you're young, you already think you're the center of the universe. And if you have success young, it seems to confirm it. And you've said that you think that success can sometimes breed a sense of untouchability, which is when people can be most vulnerable. And I'm wondering sort of now that you can look back and see some of the journey that you've taken with more clarity. Do you have any advice for young women that might be experiencing early success? I think if there's anything I can offer, it's that in my experience, there have been so many questions that have cropped up over the years that I thought were like so uniquely difficult and that they needed, you know, really creative answers usually in the form of ambition or more more work. And if there's anything I can offer, it's that like, I think a lot of the, the things I was struggling with were also just matters of mental health and just day-to-day health. I mean, something like whether or not to fold rookie, like, yes, that the answer to the stress I was experiencing was to fold rookie. But you know, there were a lot of creative ways I tried to solve what I was feeling before finally finding a new therapist and having the the support from people in my life to view it as a decision of, of just health and like, what do you want your life to look like day to day? And just trying to put those things first rather than trying to, I don't know, like achieve your way out of, out of distress. So if, I don't know if that's quite like a advice, but that's what I think I can offer. Thank you. 
Um, I want to talk with you about some of your current projects. You're currently working on quite a few. You've brought some of the original Rookie Spirit back to life in an (laughs) eight-episode podcast for Audible Originals titled Life Skills by Rookie, which is a riff on the site's popular column. And in typical Tavi style, the show provides candid but kind of humble advice for dealing with some common but hard to talk about issues, how to end an unhealthy friendship. I was particularly interested in that one. (laughs) How to navigate conflict and confrontation and even how to talk to people who are not good at talking to people. (laughs) So I've been wondering, did the pandemic influence the show's topics? They're very soulful, you know, very Mm. introspective. And I'm wondering if now that we've had a lot more time to think about maybe some of our unhealthy friendships or how do we want to live in the world? How do, how do we want to get together with people? I was wondering if if COVID has influenced the way that you were thinking about the arc of the show. Yeah, I mean, it came together pre-pandemic. The scripts were all written last summer and definitely influenced. I mean, one episode is how to manage uncertainty. Like, that yeah. uh, writer and I were constantly talking about the events that were unfolding every day over the last year. So, yes, it, I think it definitely it was really nice in this last year to have this way of working with these other writers and to do a, a rookie project that was um, a, different from stuff we'd done before, but very like I think calling on the the best aspects of rookie. Oh, absolutely. I, I listened to the uncertainty one first. I didn't want to wait oh. um, because that's something that I'm I'm obsessed by, you know, as if there is ever any certainty. I know that you're working on another podcast for Audible about romance and fiction. Will that also be under the rookie moniker? That's not a rookie thing. That's a narrative podcast. That's so cool. So you're really yeah. getting into the podcast world and yes. you're writing a book. Yes. Tell I us, am. is that a memoir? Is it an art book? <laughs> yeah, it is a like memoir essays hybrid. When do we have the ability to be able to purchase it? That is a question for my psychic. Um, no, <laughs> <laughs> I hear I, you. <laughs> As somebody that was a year late on my deadline for my book, I totally hear you. <laughs> yeah, like I'm hoping a year from now, or possibly later in 2022, or possibly 2023. Mm, okay. Certainty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, finally, um, I'm very excited to talk with you about your participation in the HBO Max reboot of Gossip Girl, which you yes. are starring in. Congratulations. Thank you. For our young listeners, the original series aired from 2007 to 2012 on The CW, and this reboot is set in the same Tony New York City neighborhood, same schools, but features a much more racially diverse new cast, pledges queer inclusivity. I'm very happy about that. The first set of photographs of the cast on the steps of the Met instantly went viral, <laughs> instantly, like broke the internet. Were you, were you surprised by the response? Um. You know, there had been murmurs for so long that I was like, okay, people will be excited to see this. Because I think the original show has such a strong fan base and people are like constantly rediscovering it. So the centerpiece of the original show was the blogosphere Gossip Girl Once Ruled. And that's (laughs) changed in the reboot. But you play a character named Kate Keller. Tell us about Kate. Tell us what you can about Kate. (laughs) I was just going to say, like, I don't know what I can say. Um, She's ambitious. She looks like me. I think I'm legally uh, bound to not say more than that. (laughs) Okay. We'll just have to send our (laughs) listeners to Google it because there's some interesting stuff, but not much. There is that ambition word, but that was pretty much all I could find. But there was some good photos, good photos. (laughs) Tavi, the last thing I want to talk to you about is someone very important to me who I believe is, who I know is important to you, Stevie Nicks. I knew that was who it would be. (laughs) (laughs) In your TED Talk many years ago, you stated this. So what I hope you'll take away from my talk, the lesson in all of this is to just be Stevie Nicks. That's all you have to do, because my favorite thing about her, other than everything, is that she has always been unapologetically present on stage and unapologetic about her flaws and about reconciling all of her contradictory feelings. And she makes you listen to them and think about them. So please be Stevie Nicks. 
I have been trying to do that my whole life, basically. <laughs> sometimes more successfully than others. I'm wondering if you still feel the same way about Stevie that you did then. Yes. Oh my gosh. And she just keeps giving us more reasons to aspire to everything she represents. Right. I feel like- I don't even- Yeah. I just, I don't even think about her songs being songs anymore. I call them gems. (laughs) I love that. They really are, they feel- elemental to the the universe in a way that like they they're much more than songs and i feel like on her instagram she's always posting these great little coincidences around their lyrics like there, there's a very she's a she's a mystic she's a mystic and is it true that after stevie heard your talk she sent you a cashmere blanket to wrap yourself in whenever you felt like you needed a hug yes that is what she said i went to she invited me to her show And I went with my friends and my parents in Chicago when I was still in high school. And she dedicated Landslide to me from the stage. And I was sobbing. And yeah, she um, and she's been yeah, she's like a a fairy godmother, which I say because she literally signed a card that way. So, yeah. Yeah. I will share something that I know you'll relate to. When I was in high school, I was on the prom committee for my senior prom. And I wanted the, th- you know, this was 1979. So it was like the year after Landslide came out. Mm-hmm. And I wanted that song to be our theme song for the prom. <gasps> but no one wanted the name Landslide for the prom because that was not a good name. So <laughs> I recommended, wait for it, Mirror in the Sky. <gasps> And then we put tinfoil on the cafeteria ceiling. I just needed to share that with you. I thought you'd appreciate it more than almost anyone I know. Yeah, absolutely. How poetic. <laughs> How, I, that's amazing. Yeah. Last See, I peaked. would have been hard to do. Then. No, please. <laughs> well, Mirror in the Sky is hard to beat. Wow. Yeah, it is. Tavi, thank you so much for putting so much wonderful work in the world. And thank you so much for joining me today on Design Matters. I've wanted to do this for a long time. I'm so happy that you're here. Thank you, Debbie. It means a lot to me. I'm I'm very honored. Thank you. Thank you. You can hear Tavi's new podcast, Life Skills by Rookie, on Audible Originals. You can see her in the upcoming reboot of Gossip Girl on HBO Max. You can read her writing and see more of her work at Tavi Gevinson at tavigevinson.world. This is the 17th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters and Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. 